Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning is from the book of Daniel, beginning in chapter 11, but at the second verse, and extending through the 12th chapter to the third verse. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not according to his posterity, nor according to his dominion which he, ha- which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted." even for others besides these. Also the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion, and at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement." but she shall not remain, retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. But from a branch of her roots one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortresses of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. However, his son shall stir up strife, and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage, and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. When he has taken away the multitude, His heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power." He shall also set his faiths to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. 
and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. After this he shall turn his face to the coastlands, and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. There shall, be a, there shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil." And they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. At the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Cyprus shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant, and forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation." Those who do wickedly against the covenant he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by sword and famine, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, But many shall join with them by intrigue, and some of those who understand shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. 
For what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the gods of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a god of fortresses, and a god which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, every one who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn away many those who turn away many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. It was also a fairly long reading, but it does all fit together, and you needed to hear it all together to get it in context. Chapters 10 through 12 are effectively a unit. They are a vision unto themselves, and this is the core of the vision. If the Reformation could be said to have a motto, that motto would be, After darkness, light. On one of my Geneva study Bibles that's actually emblazoned on the cover, it was a a, a motto, a statement by the Reformers concerning how they felt life was with the dawn of the Reformation. We have been in great darkness. Darkness has been overwhelming. But after darkness, light. It's a confession of the goodness of God and the goodness of his doings in their time. The darkness passes away. The light begins to shine. The time of the Reformation was, without doubt, a time of turmoil and warfare and uh, hardship. But after darkness, light. 
The light was worth the darkness. The light has come and replaced the darkness. There is no desire to go back to the darkness. After darkness, light. It had been dark for a long time, though. Although it is hard to say exactly when the darkness began. The truth is, the darkness had been growing for... 1,400 years. The darkness was a people of God oppressed by the world, and much worse than that, a people of God in internal darkness, false doctrine, false practice, false comfort, false hope. By the time of the Reformation, the darkness was deep. But it had its roots back in the early centuries of the church. One little compromise here, one little compromise there, one admixing God's people with uh, the powers that be here, one small concession to culture there, one false doctrine embraced, small, but uh, causing the whole to have a certain flavor one slight concession to pagan practices, worshiping God with images. One small thing at a time, one tiny little twist, not really even noticed by those living at the time. Not small things over a handful of years, but small things over a handful of generations. The darkness grew... The light remained, but it was always just a little dimmer. And like the proverbial frog in the kettle, nobody noticed until everything was boiling. But the Reformation came, and after darkness, light. And the church was filled with gratitude for what God had done. The darkness had become so dark that really all that was left was small little islands of light in a sea of darkness, little Bible study groups and certain people in certain places. It looked like the light of God's covenant was going out forever. But then, after darkness, light. But do not lose sight of how long that darkness was. It was over a millennia of darkness. The vision that God, who is an angel, is revealing to Daniel is very similar to that. As I mentioned some month ago, one of the reasons why uh, liberals despise the book of Daniel is because they say it can't possibly be from God because it's way too accurate. Especially in this particular prophecy, Uh, It gets its history just so perfectly right that it can't be miraculously given by God because it reads like somebody who is an eyewitness to what's happening. Well, it is an eyewitness to what's happening. It's God who is the great I am, and he is always in history. And he is telling Daniel what's going to happen. And you can take this vision and you can overlay it over the history between Daniel, and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it fits perfectly. 
It is a prophecy of people, of places, of battles, of the flow of history and the rise and fall of kings that will ultimately bring us to those three verses in Daniel chapter 12, which is the culmination of the age. At the end of this vision, you will have the end of the age. Time will literally change. It will not be like it was. The former will be gone. The latter will come into existence. The latter is the world after our Lord Jesus Christ. It will be a time of light. The Lord Christ will walk upon the earth among men. Every promise that God has ever made will come true in him. After darkness will be light. Light like the world has never seen. But don't lose sight of how long the darkness will be. The vision covers a span of some 300 years. It doesn't actually start in Daniel's lifetime. I misspoke when I said that, but it's not that long after Daniel. Uh, It covers 300 years of human history, and the vision shows the world growing darker, which was not what the people of God wanted to hear. They had been told that they would be gathered back to the land, that God would rebuild the temple, that God would reestablish his people and reestablish his covenant. They were looking for a moment of great glory. They were looking for the triumphant God to reestablish them and this time fighting with the world, the flesh, and the devil. The church was going to be absolutely gloriously triumphant And the end of the age would be God judging the world and this sinful world would come to an end and it would be overwhelmingly glorious. And the vision says that's not exactly the way these 300 years are going to work. Rather, there is going to be machinations by kings and queens. There is going to be intermarrying between dynasties The intermarrying of dynasties will not promote the peace. There will be uh, connivory. There will be knives in the back. There will be political machinations that will affect the entire known world. And everything is going to grow just a little darker, a little darker, a little darker. Not over 1,500 years, but 300 years is kind of a long stretch of time. And it's going to get dark. But after darkness will come light. If you go to a good study Bible, like this one, it's the Geneva Study Bible, uh, and you look at the notes, uh, there's all kinds of people here that, if you're a history buff, you know who they are, uh, but there's references in, in quick succession. For instance, we're told that verse 6 of chapter 11 is a reference to Bernice, the daughter of Ptolemy II Philadelphus. Uh, we are told that uh, Laodice is referenced in the same verse. He, she is the wife of Antiochus II. Uh, we're told that Ptolemy the third, Eugenesis, is referenced in verse 7. 
And all these references are true. They are references to people who will live and do things. And interestingly, people who mostly will live and die committing their intrigues and building up their political power, having no idea that the Lord God is using them. Queens will marry kings in an attempt to get more power over their father. There will be wars in between families. The kingdom of Alexander the Great will break into four kingdoms. And as far as most of these people are concerned, they aren't going to know any relation to what they're doing to the God of gods at all. They're just doing what politicians do, which is fight, lie, and backstab. And it's going to roll. It's going to roll through history. Alexander will overthrow Persia. Alexander will die with no heirs because he's not the kind of guy who has them. He will leave his kingdom to his generals, and they will establish four dynasties that will betray one another and fight with one another, ally with each other over others, intermarry, uh, kill their own family. Is God involved in this? As far as they're concerned, they don't see him, I'm sure. But the vision tells us God is involved, even when those who are doing the acting have no idea about that. God is laying out his history. He is laying out these 300 years, and it's going to fall out according to a certain pattern. That pattern I read about, not this morning, but I read about about a month ago in my first sermon on this section, but I didn't touch it in my sermon, and nobody asked me about it, and I was kind of surprised about that, Because it is a very striking thing that God, who is an angel, has said. um, Very striking. It is towards the end of chapter 10, and it's verse 21, and it reads like this. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. Now, the verse goes on and talks about angelic warfare, And if you're of such an inclination that that's very exciting to you, you tend to jump to that part of the verse. But the divine messenger just said, everything I'm going to tell you is already recorded in the scripture of truth. What is he referring to? Well, he's not referring to any other book of the Bible, because this is new revelation There is no other vision in Scripture that quite covers this time period the way this one does. But the messenger says, it's all been written down, and it's going to fall out according to how it's been written down. And now I'm going to tell you how it's written down. It is in the Scripture of truth. Well, what is that? Well, David... Noted what that was, well, it's not written by David, it's actually written by another psalmist. The psalmist noted what that was in Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in the heavens. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. How did God create the world? 
according to Scripture? How'd that take place? In the beginning, God created, and everything came into existence instantly. But then, after everything was created, how did God shape it? Well, for the next six days, we're told repeatedly, and God said. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be a separation of land and water, and it was. God spoke, and the very force of God's communicating his word caused it to be. He is such a king, such a ruler, that things just happen when he talks, when he puts forward a word. And in Psalm 119, the psalmist pictures God having put forward words concerning literally everything. God has written out what is going to be his word on earth in the form of the scripture, uh, in the form of the sacraments, in the form of Jesus Christ being the word of God. All of it answers to the word of God that is established in the heavens. God has written what is going to happen. There's not going to be any deviation from it. God has set in motion his word, and it's fixed. God will have his way with time, and God, who is an angel, has come to tell Daniel, this is what is written in heaven. And all these people are doing things, and most of them have no spiritual understanding at all. But they are in the hand of God who is laying a foundation for what will happen at the end of these 300 years. It's going to be glorious. It is going to be light like nobody's business. But unfortunately, for reasons known to God, there is an overwhelming pattern that if you want to rejoice in light, you're going to have to embrace the motto, after darkness, light. It's kind of the way things work. I'm not sure why. I'm, I'm in sales and not management. But the light breaks forward in its glory. God brings forth his grace in blazing, wondrous light, usually after darkness. And this 300-year period is going to get darker and darker and darker until we reach verse 21 through 45, where it gets about as dark as it can get. It's recorded in the heavens in God's word. It's in the book of, of truth. God has written this down. But by the time we get to verse 21, we have passed from Antiochus II to a man who will be called Antiochus III, and if there is going to be one particular person on earth who is in himself the Antichrist, Antiochus is going to be a type and shadow of him. I am not really from the school of thought that says the Antichrist is going to be one guy. I agree with the reformers that Antichrist is an office, and you're going to have men in that office but as you know, a great majority of the church believes there's a coming Antichrist, one man who will be the exact opposite of Jesus of Nazareth in every way, and he will rule the world and do what he wants and cause as much 
absolute terror and darkness, as you can imagine, if such a person comes, he will simply be doing what Antiochus did. Because you really can't outdo Antiochus. He is a monster. He is a terror. He takes to the northern throne, a reference to the Seleucid kingdom over Syria, and he is a tyrant's tyrant. Everything he does is a rebellion against everything that could be considered spiritual. The vision says he will reject his father's god or gods. I read it in the plural, and if you look at the footnote in your Bible, it will tell you it can be either god or gods. Um, Antiochus III comes to the throne and decides he doesn't particularly like the gods that his family has been worshiping. So he throws them out. Ironically, they are not Greek gods. He is a Greek ruler. He is a descendant from a general who served under Alexander, but his family has not been worshiping Greek gods. They have been worshiping Zoroastrian gods. They have been bowing down to the pantheon of Persia, and that was for political reasons. But Antiochus III decides to clean house, and he throws all that out, and he embraces a god his fathers did not know, ironically, under the image of a Greek god. Antiochus embraces a divinity that he calls Zeus, which is about as Greek as you can get. But Antiochus' presentation of Zeus is totally different than the way he is pictured by anyone in Greece up till this time. Antiochus kind of reinvents him. He declares Zeus to be, quote, the god of fortresses, end quote. He is the god of war, which is usually reserved for Ares in the Greek pantheon. But Zeus is the god of fortresses. It will be the god that Antiochus worships. And this Zeus cares about world conquest. That's how you worship him. And Antiochus sets about worshiping his god. But there is still a slight twist here, even still. He declares this god of fortresses, this Zeus of fortresses, to be the god of gods, and then he mints coins for his kingdom, and on the coins he puts his image, so that you have the face of Antiochus when you're spending money. But he makes the face of himself on the coins look like Zeus is portrayed. So he puts his own image over the image of his God and is basically saying, I am the manifestation of God on earth. And in case you miss what he's telling you, he also adopts a surname, Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means the glory of God on earth. And so Antiochus comes to the throne. He comes in by deceitful measures. He takes the throne he hits the ground running, he declares himself God and begins to do whatever he wants, and what he wants is to absolutely conquer the earth. And if you want to conquer creation, you're going to make yourself a very powerful enemy. Because according to scripture, who does creation belong to? 
Well, by right of creation, it's God's. And if you want to take everything into your hand and make yourself God, the God of gods, the real God, is going to take that personally. And Antiochus recognized that, and from the very beginning of his reign, he absolutely hates the God of the Jews. He, he puts himself over everything that is called God or worshipped. He calls himself the, the glory of God on earth. But there is one God among all of them that he absolutely wants to grind under his heel, and that is Yahweh. Yahweh has to go. The God of the Jews is especially to be destroyed. Why such hatred for our God? Well, he is something of a nationalist. He wants to make his kingdom unified culturally, and he wants to unify that culture in himself. He wants to be literally the image that everybody else will begin to look like. And in studying what the God of gods has to say in his scripture, Antiochus rightly and truly comes to the understanding the people of this God will never fit in. If they follow the word of God as it is written, if they cling to the God who is worshipped in Jerusalem, if they are faithful to him, they will never perfectly fit into what I'm building. And I'm the image of God, and I'm building something divine, and they better fit in. I will not allow them to stand out. I will not allow them to worship their God. I will have uniformity in my kingdom of worship to Zeus. And they're not going to do it. And I know they're not going to do it. If they're faithful to God, they're not going to do it. So let's let loose the dogs of war and crush them. There are writings from this time that will make your hair stand on end. There is a book called Fourth Maccabees, which nobody's really sure exactly its origin, although the most likely is that it is a speech written by Josephus commemorating people who die under Antiochus. But Fourth Maccabees is the detailing of a faithful family who won't renounce their worship of God, and Antiochus has them tortured in, in very cruel and creative ways that are designed to extend pain, to extend torture, to break the body slowly. He kills an old man, he kills a mother and her seven sons, and he rejoices in doing it it will really, if, if you read it and think about what you're reading, uh, it is uh, a macabre, gory story, and it has the ring of sincerity to it. This is what Antiochus does. He will crush God by crushing everyone who's faithful to him, and they're not going to die fast. They're going to die slow. Because he's the image of God, and how dare you stand against the glory of God on earth? It is going to get very, very dark, says God to Daniel. 
By the time we get to verse 21 and we go to verse 45, we come to the end of chapter 11, artificially created, but we are at the end of this chapter, and it's been a long ride through those 24 verses, and uh, terrible things have happened. But then chapter 12 begins, and chapter 12 begins with, at that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Now, there's going to be a little bump here, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, which seems to be a reference to Rome and everything it does. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. Well, aren't we delivered already? Daniel might think. Well, deliverance from God can be described as you have been delivered, you are being delivered, and you will be delivered. God had made promises to his people that there would be deliverance. It would come in the form of the Christ. It would be the prophet, the priest, the king. Everything God had promised would take place upon earth. And when God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. The people of God from the Garden of Eden trusted in God by promise, but everything God had said he would do, he hadn't quite done yet. He had promised there would be a deliverer, and the deliverer would do something. The deliverer would save the people, that salvation would be eternal and perfect. Well, after darkness comes light. After Manasseh, the most wicked of kings to rule on the throne of Judah, comes Josiah, the reforming king. After being carried away to Babylon, comes the return and the rebuilding of the temple. At the beginning of our era, comes Jesus the Christ. The glory of God, who is really the glory of God, the redemption of God, everything God has ever promised comes at that moment. But after darkness, light. Daniel, you must understand, God doesn't hide from you that life on earth is going to be very, very difficult And if you feel like you're in a war, if you feel like you are perpetually in conflict, if you feel like the world is shaking, don't tell God he didn't tell you it would happen. Ours is not a religion that hides the hard, the struggle, the difficult. If anything, God goes out of his way to say, if you are looking for the light, expect it at the end of darkness. After darkness comes the light. The old theologians in the church had a word for this. They said there were two forms of God's people. They exist at the same time, and they are God's people. Those who are in spirit with the Lord, who have left this world, they are the church triumphant. The church triumphant has been delivered from the world, the flesh, and the devil, 
It has been delivered from machinations. It has been delivered from persecution. It has been delivered from evil government. It's the church triumphant. But there is another aspect of the church, and that is the church who lives on earth. And the old theologian's word for that part of the church is the church militant. If you are alive and if you are in God's covenant, if you belong to the Lord, expect bullets, expect hostility, expect opposition, expect to be hated by bloodthirsty men. You are the church militant. God loves you, but the Antiochus Epiphanes of this world does not, and there are quite a number of them. And God's light is coming. But it's after darkness that you get light. So, why? Why does God do it that way? Well, like I told you, I'm in sales and not in management. I don't tell God what to do. And God does not always tell me exactly why he's doing what he's doing. But it seems significant to me that in verse 32 through 35, the angelic messenger talks about the people who will be faithful to God during this terrible time. And listen to what he says as we read those verses again. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. So Antiochus is going to have people inside the covenant who betray the covenant, they're visibly in the church, but they're going to be betrayers. But but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame and captivity and plundering. Now, when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue, and some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. God works through darkness. God does his work in the storm just as much as he does at the noonday. The Apostle Paul tells us to pray for kings and all in authority that we may live quiet and peaceable lives. And this is good and acceptable to God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. In saying that, Paul seems to be saying When the light is shining and there's peace and there's not persecution, it is a very favorable time to declare the gospel of Christ and share it with your neighbor and see the kingdom built up. And that's absolutely true. When God in his providence gives us a time of peace, we have an opportunity like nobody's business to glorify God. We don't tend to use it. I don't know why. But when there is peace and prosperity, when God's people are not being savagely attacked by the world 
the flesh and the devil, we don't make hay while the sun shines. We sit in our homes, we don't glorify God, we don't obey the call to the gospel. We only really get spurred to that when we hear the first thunderclap, when the first rain drops begin to fall, when the lightning strikes, then we say, don't we have a job? Didn't God leave us on earth for a purpose? That's when we remember. And what the angelic messenger is saying is there will be faithful people alive in the darkness and they will instruct many. They will teach the truth. They will do great exploits. It will be a time for spiritual heroes, but it's going to be a hard time. They will be martyrs. They will die. They will be crushed under Antiochus' feet. Uh, Only a few people will come to help them, although, quote, many will join them by intrigue. What is the messenger saying there? He's picturing events like you see in John chapter 3. What happens in John chapter 3? Well, you have the most uh, famous uh, chapter in the Bible, Uh, It has John 3.16, you know, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. It's in the context of a meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He is not willing to be seen with Jesus by day. It would be dangerous, and he is not willing to stand for the truth out in the open, but he sneaks in to meet with Jesus at night. And Jesus doesn't turn him away saying, you know, you should be brave, you should openly stand for truth. You actually have the most famous conversation between Jesus and a man in all the Bible. And if you follow what happens with Nicodemus through the Gospel of John, after this, the next time you see him, Nicodemus will speak up in the Sanhedrin and actually ask, are we doing the right thing? Which means he's getting a little braver. And then when we see him at the end of the Gospel of John, he joins openly and outwardly with Joseph of Arimathea and openly and publicly buries Jesus' body. He has been transformed from the man sneaking in the night to Jesus to openly being his servant, but it took time. Well, the angelic messenger says there's going to be a lot of that. The darkness is going to be crushing and men are going to be afraid. You're only going to get a little help and there's going to be martyrdom. But those scared little church mice will come. They will come because they want truth and the darkness will drive them to it. People tend to go through life asleep. But when things get dark and really scary, people wake up. And my faithful ones will be there. They will be there to instruct many. They will be there to point those people to me. And even while Antiochus is raging and persecuting and killing and torturing, his every action is driving more and more people to seek me, and I'll have my people in the darkness. They will be there. Why will they be there? Well, quite frankly, they wouldn't be there if it wasn't for divine help. 
Because human beings are made of clay, and we crumble on our own. But this is the darkest moment in history as far as they're concerned, and there are still godly people there because God will have them there. And they will minister in the deepest of darkness. They will minister in a time of torture. They will minister in a time of war. And they will turn many to the God of gods. Because that's the way God will have it. Everything through this chapter keeps repeating the phrase, the end will come at the appointed time. It's said several times. The darkness will come, but the end of darkness will be light, and God's timing will be perfect. I, I really don't know why the beginning of uh, the Christian era was the perfect time for the Messiah. But I am assured by Scripture it is. It says it several times. The promises of God will happen at the time of God, and everything will be a foundation for those promises. And even in the darkness, everything is being set up for ch- verse 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Um, you're going to be delivered. And not only that, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is going to be a light so great it's going to raise the dead. At least some of them. You take that odd? When the, the scriptures talk about the coming general resurrection... Uh, it says everybody gets raised. And yet here we have deliverance take place. It's at the end of Antiochus. It's at the end of the time even worse than him. Um, Everybody who is in the book gets delivered, but many of those who sleep in the dust shall awake, not all of them. And some will arise to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. Why just some? And where's the rest of them? In New Testament scholarship today, even among evangelicals, and one might say even especially among evangelicals, there is a passage in the Gospel of Matthew that, quite frankly, the evangelical church is embarrassed about. They wish it wasn't there because um, they get beaten up with it by liberals who say this smells like mythology and The modern-day evangelical church doesn't want anything worse than to be told it's dumb. And so they kind of hem and haw, and they kind of put it on back burner. But the passage is Matthew 27, verse 50 to 53. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. If you go to a typical Bible college and you ask a Bible college professor, what do you think of this passage? You go, well, you know, it only appears in Matthew. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. Let's talk about something else. 
Because apparently, um, a supernatural ripping of the temple veil from top to bottom and a man dying who is going to come back to life three days later is just totally in accord with natural law. But the idea that a lot of people were raised from the dead when he died is kind of embarrassing and we don't want to talk about it. But according to the New Testament, that did happen. According to the New Testament, when Jesus died, a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people actually rose from the dead at that point, and they wandered into town and began talking about it. Just like Daniel was told. After darkness will come light. It will be every promise God has ever given. Your people will be redeemed. Everyone who has been written in the book of life will find the redeeming promises true for them. Everything God has done is going to be heralded by a lot of people rising from the dead. Some of them to die and go to hell again, but there's going to be a group of people raised from the dead. That's how serious this is, and you're going to know it when it happens by this. Um, Matthew perfectly accords with Daniel. Jesus is every promise of God. What is happening on the cross brings reconciliation, and that is why the temple veil is torn in two. Everything barring us from God is removed, but it's after darkness. The world has been as terrible as you can imagine, but after darkness, light, and light needs heralds. And there is nobody better to herald the coming of the light than somebody you thought was dead who came back in. God has worked, and after darkness, light. And it's the age of the gospel. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The gospel has been in the world since the Garden of Eden. When God made a promise to our forefathers that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. That's the gospel in a nutshell, and it's been in the world since that day. But with the resurrection of Christ, it is the age of the gospel. The gospel is going out like it never has. Jesus, during the 40 days of his instruction to his disciples, said this to them. It's a very famous passage. Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It had been happening, but now it was going to happen like nobody's business. What had been a whisper in history now was going to be the loudest shout the world had ever seen. People would be converted, and they would bear the gospel to other people whom God would be pleased to convert, and they would bear the gospel to others whom God would be pleased to convert. 
the way the Apostle Paul describes it in the book of Philippians is this way. I'm reading from the original New International Version just because I think it catches the essence of the passage. It's Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. You will shine like stars. You will hold out the gospel. You will hold it out to the darkness. You will be like stars shining in the night. It will be the age of the gospel. Or to put it in God's direct quote, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. After darkness, light. God will not permit darkness to reign, ever. Its victories are passing. The light always will be shining. It may seem very dim at times, and you may live in a time of darkness. You may think that you are in some sort of war, and you will be right. But after darkness, light. Jesus is the ultimate light, and we bear him to the world, no matter how dark it is.